We are finishing up today uh, a series in the book of Colossians. Uh, we've been in it most of the summer. We're going to finish up today. Uh, next week, J.R. Foster, who's the area coordinator for Reform University Fellowship, our campus ministry, is going to be speaking. And then beginning in September, we're going to be looking at who is Jesus. It's a study of the claims uh, and the teachings and the person and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, but today, our last week in the book of Colossians, you'll find the text printed in your bulletin, or you can turn there in your Bible to Colossians chapter 4. We're going to be reading Colossians 4, beginning in verse 2. This is God's Word. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, I pray right now that you would make my speech clear uh, and that you would work through it and that I would be able to clearly explain uh, this text and its application for us. Uh, And yet, Father, uh, I know I will fail in in some ways at that. And so I pray that you would work uh, now in spite of me and that your spirit would indeed be here with us, uh, opening our eyes and our hearts to your word. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I got a uh, hypothetical situation for you. Uh, Let's say you are in your office one day uh, and you've just installed the latest version of Windows. You haven't switched to the dark side yet. Uh, You've just installed the latest version of Windows on your computer and you can't get the thing running naturally. Uh, and, and you're trying to figure out what you need to do. And so person after person is coming into your office trying to explain to you or to help you get your computer running, but nobody can figure it out and nobody can fix it. And so you're just there stuck. Uh, now suppose for whatever reason, and I don't know why this would be the case, but just suppose that for some reason Bill Gates uh, is visiting your company that day. Uh, and that Bill Gates is actually standing right outside of your office. And person after person is walking into your office to try to fix your computer, and none of them bothers to stop and ask Bill Gates, the founder of Microsoft, hey, can you come show me how to work this thing? Can you come tell me what's wrong with this computer? Don't you think that would be a little odd, a little strange, that nobody would bother to stop and ask Mr. Gates about this computer, that nobody would say, hey, he might know how to do this. Uh, we might even ask ourselves, why, why is everybody just walking by him? You know, uh, is he wearing an Apple shirt this, today? Uh, is he in disguise? Does he look really grumpy? Well, why is nobody asking Bill Gates how to fix this computer? Why aren't anybody asking him any questions? Now, as I read this text uh, that we're looking at this morning, there was something that stuck in my head, and it's what's here at the end of verse 6. 
Paul says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now, who are these people that you ought to answer? Well, up in verse 5, um, Paul says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. In other words, Paul is fully expecting there to be believers who are in the faith, and then there are those who aren't believers, and so in that sense they're outside the faith. But Paul fully expects outsiders, people who don't believe, to be asking people who are in the faith questions. He expects this to be normal. That they would be asking questions of those in the faith. And I started asking myself as I was reading this, is anybody asking me any questions? Is anybody asking me any questions about this faith uh, that I profess, about Christianity, about the gospel, about Jesus Christ? Uh, some of us might ask ourselves that question, uh, and we might say, yeah, people do ask me questions about my faith, and, and we're thankful for that. Uh, many of us might say, that, well, maybe every once in a while, uh, but quite often, nobody really asks me anything about my faith. Why is that? Why don't people ask Christians more questions about their faith? Uh, and I think what this text shows us is some character traits we ought to have if people are actually going to ask Christians questions about their faith. Um, and if you're here today and you're not a believer, then maybe you can tell me afterwards uh, how much this rings true. Uh, but, but, but here are some of the things... I think we ought to see cultivated in the life of a believer if we are to have people outside of the faith ask us questions. And the first one is this. Uh, verse 3, Paul says, At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Right, the first thing that needs to be true of me if I'm going to see people ask questions about my faith uh, is that I ought to be praying. Paul wants the Colossians to pray that he and that they would have open doors for the gospel. Because Paul realizes that without God's work, there are going to be no open doors for the gospel. Because he knows, you know that catechism question we talked about a few minutes ago? He knows that that's true. And that by nature, we're really set against God. And we don't want to hear about God. And he knows that from personal experience, not just from Scripture. He knows it from personal experience because he was that person who was set against God. And he didn't want anything to do with Jesus. And he knows that it took a supernatural act of God for him to believe and to rest in Jesus Christ. He, understand that unless, he understood that unless God's working in people's hearts that people are just going to go, you know, I'd really rather not hear that. And so Paul is telling us to pray for open doors and open hearts to receive the word. Um, you know, I, I find that quite often I think what we do is we rely simply on ourselves. And we're well-intentioned as believers, and we're looking for opportunities perhaps to share the gospel, but at the end of the day we're not really praying that God would open doors and open hearts. And what we're doing when we live in that way is we're saying, this is about me. I can figure this out. I can make this happen. I can argue to some, with somebody and convince them 
of the truths of Christianity. And Paul said, look, you need to be praying. This is, a, this is a God thing. God's got to give you doors. He's got to give you openings to speak the gospel. Uh, so we need to be praying, praying for each other, that we'd have these open doors for the gospel. But I want to say a second thing about prayer. Look at verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. See, not only does a believer need to be praying for the lost, but the believer in Jesus Christ needs to be cultivating a life of prayer in general. Uh, I've got a quote from one of my seminary professors on my desk in my office. It says this, The better you know God, the more certain it is that you will pray to Him. The better you know God, the more certain it is that you will pray to Him. Well, how do you get to know God? Well, you, you open his word, uh, you listen to the sermons that talk about God's word, uh, and you pray, and you fellowship with other believers. And as you do that, you'll grow in your understanding of who he is. And the more you understand who he is, the more you'll realize he's not just sort of this cosmic force, but he's actually a, a personal God, a father even, who you can pray to and cry out to and have a relationship with with him and the more you realize that the more you'll actually open your mouth and talk to him and speak to him and pray to him and guess what the better you know him the more you pray the more your life's actually going to be changed and the more your life's changed the more people are actually going to ask you questions about your faith why are you different what's different about your life now some of you have known you know people that they just pray, and they pray a lot, and you just look at them and go, there's something different about that person. It's not because prayer is magical, but it's because prayer has caused them to know their father better. Uh, now, let me make a suggestion here. Uh, because one of the things that we all say when, we, when you start talking about prayer is that uh, there are so many things that crowd out prayer in our lives. There's so many things we get busy with, right? Work, school, family, hobbies, whatever. All these things have a way of crowding prayer out of our lives. Uh, many years ago, I heard the illustration from a Stephen Covey book called The Big Rocks Go In First. Uh, and the illustration is basically this. If you take a jar and you fill it up with pebbles... There's going to be no room in the jar for any larger rocks to go into it. But if you take the jar when it's empty and you put in the big rocks first, then there's room for pebbles to fill up the spaces between the big rocks. And often our lives are just all these little bitty things that fill up the jar while the big rocks, like prayer, we can't get it in there. And the point is, to put the important things in first, to put the big rocks in first, to put prayer in first. Uh, and to simply remember that the next time you sit down to you know, surf the internet for a few minutes or whatever time-wasting thing you like, you know, angry birds for half an hour, um, as you're putting those little rocks in, ask, you know, what about the big rocks? Is there any room for the big rocks? Because one of the things we're saying specifically with prayer when we don't make that a big rock in our lives is we're saying, look, the thing that makes my life work, the thing that gives my life significance are all these pebbles. It's all about me. 
It's all about what I'm doing. And I'm going to pull this off and I'm going to make this work. Now, you may not say that. You know, if I went up and asked you um, what makes the world turn, you're going to say, well, it's God. Um, but in practice, uh, many of us are just filling our lives with the little pebbles. And what's that saying is, I can do this. I can pull this off. At the end of the day, to make life work, it's up to me. And prayer is an acknowledgement. It's you and I saying, it's not up to me. This is God. God's the one who is going to make this work. So the first thing we need to cultivate in our lives is a life of prayer. The second thing we need to cultivate is a life that's lived differently. A life that's lived differently. Uh, a couple of years ago, my family and I uh, went to Europe for a couple of weeks. Uh, and one day we were in Rome walking around there. And I saw somebody, and you didn't know that I'm a, if you, most of you know this, that I'm a graduate of Auburn University. And I, and I saw somebody and I greeted them with the Auburn battle cry, which is War Eagle. Um, be like, go Tigers or go dogs. And so I'm, I'm standing here in Rome and I say to somebody, War Eagle. And when I said that, the Pope said, bless you, my child, War Eagle. When I said that, the person replied, War Eagle. Now, now, why did I go up to some random person in Rome in the ruins of the Colosseum and say this? Well, you said, because you're psycho. Now, but why did, I, why did I feel comfortable doing this? Well, because they had an Auburn hat on. And I was like, well, that's kind of cool. There's somebody else uh, here in Rome wearing an Auburn hat. They were different. They stuck out uh, because there are not a lot of people running around the ruins of the Colosseum wearing Auburn hats. He was different from the people around him, and it was obvious to me. Now, uh, I'm not suggesting that we all get hats that say Jesus is cool, because uh, that wouldn't be cool, but, and, and, and wear them everywhere. But I do think that one of the reasons, we need to be honest with ourselves, one of the reasons that people don't ask us as Christians questions about our faith is that we don't really look any different from anybody else around us. Not necessarily in our, in our physical appearance, but oftentimes the things that we are chasing and the things that are important to us, they're the same things as they are for non-believers around us. Uh, we, we want personal peace, we want comfort, we want affluence. We want all these these nice things, nice trips. All of these things are what we chase. Now, there's not anything wrong with these things in and of themselves. Don't misunderstand me. But when they become the big rocks, when they become the thing that we're really chasing after, instead of chasing after God, when they begin to define us, then we don't look any differently from a person who doesn't have God in their life at all. Um, our God very often is the God of personal peace and affluence. I want to be comfortable. I want to enjoy myself. I want my kids to be well behaved. I want to make sure that I go to heaven. And so I'm going to baptize my real worship of personal peace and affluence with a little church attendance and hope that everything kind of works out all right in the end. But the truth of the matter is loving God loving my neighbor, serving other people. Those aren't big rocks in my life at all. 
the gospel's not a big rock in my life. And so people look at me, and they don't see anything different from anybody else. And so there's no reason for them to ask questions. There's got to be something different about a believer if you expect unbelievers to ask you about your life. Uh, number three, we need to cultivate a life of prayer. We need to cultivate a life that's different. And then third, we need to actually cultivate relationships with people who aren't Christians. We ought to be cultivating relationships with people who aren't Christians. And, and I think this is especially true in the South, is that um, there's kind of this huge divide between believing and unbelieving culture. And we just don't mix much at all. Uh, we kind of each run our own separate ways. And I understand there's a part of that that just happens. You come to faith in Christ and you're living differently and you're gathered into this community of the church and so you don't see the same people you once saw um, earlier in your life. And maybe they're even doing things that, that you once did and now you're uncomfortable with those things. And so you begin to pull away from them. Uh, but look, if a non-Christian is going to ask a Christian if you're going to be able to give an answer, somebody's got to be asking you questions. And for somebody to ask you questions, you got to actually have a relationship with them, with somebody who doesn't believe. And I think a lot of the barriers we put up are often unnecessary and self-imposed. That, that you as a believer really ought to have relationships uh, with messy people, people who aren't among the who's who in Spartanburg County, um, People that you might, if you were honest, you wouldn't want other people at church to know you hang out with or that you associate with. You ought to have relationships with those people. Uh, why do I say that? Well, because Jesus was accused of being a drunk because of who he hung out with. He really was. That, that was who he associated with. But very often as believers, we get very much holier than thou and we, we pull away from people and we don't associate with the very people we ought to be associating with. Uh, there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, I mentioned some of those already. Uh, sometimes we're scared. Well, they're going to be a bad influence on my family. Uh, and certainly that's a possibility. But I find that the Bible seems much more uh, concerned with the influence of bad religious teaching than it does simply with, with bad moral behavior. Uh, Paul says, he tells us not to warn, he warns us not to associate with a person who is blatantly sexually immoral. But then he turns around and says, hey, hey, wait a minute, I'm not talking about non-Christians. I'm talking about Christians. Uh, we ought to be associated with those who don't know Christ. And I think another reason that we don't do this is that we've forgotten who we are. And this might be the biggest. And this might be one of the reasons that often when Christians uh, speak, we come across as very self-righteous. We've forgotten who we are. We've forgotten that we're included in that catechism question we mentioned earlier. Uh, that, that we are full of sin and unrighteousness and guilt and just wrong motives and behavior and, and, and thoughts and words all the time ourselves. And we've forgotten who we are. And so 
instead of having compassion on others, we begin to look down on others. Uh, if any of you remember the movie No Country for Old Men, it's one of my favorite movies. It's a very violent movie. I wouldn't necessarily recommend watching it with your four-year-old. Um, but in this movie, uh, there's a good old boy cowboy, and there's a sheriff played by Tommy Lee Jones, and then there's a violent serial killer. Right? A good combination. Uh, and, and in this movie, the cowboy is tracking antelopes in the desert. And as he's doing this, he comes across a drug deal that's gone bad. And there's like eight cars and all these people have been shot up. And everybody's dead except for one guy sitting behind the wheel of a car who's about to die. And in the midst of all this, there's $2 million in cash. So what do you do? All right. So there's $2 million in cash. What do you do here? Well, he takes the money and he leaves. And he leaves the one guy that's still alive to die in the desert. Well, he gets home and he, had, he starts feeling guilty about this. And so he goes back just to give that guy a drink of water, even though he knows he's going to die. He goes back to give him a drink of water. While he's there, the people to, that the money belongs to show up. And they see him leaving with the money, and so they sick this serial killer guy on him. And the whole movie is him being chased by the serial killer and Tommy Lee Jones chasing both of them and it's just it's, it's mayhem and, and, and it's an interesting movie and you watch this movie and you begin to think there are some seriously messed up people in the world and I'm going to lock all the doors tonight <laughs> I'm not going out anywhere I want to be home and safe uh, but then at one point in the movie you begin to realize one of the points that the filmmaker is making is that we're all messed up people because at one point in the movie the killer has just killed somebody and he's trying to get away and kind of out of the blue, this car slams into his car, and he's laying there on the ground, and two little boys on bikes come up to him. And he asks one of them for their shirt, and he gives him $100 for it. And so he, he uses his shirt to make a sling for his arm that's been broken in the wreck, and he walks off. And the guys, the little boys, have no idea what they just dodged. Right? He surprised he didn't just kill them, but he actually gave them 100 bucks. Well, immediately when he leaves the scene, what do the two guys start doing? You've seen the movie. They start fighting over the $100. All right, they could be dead right now. You just made $100 for a shirt. Just split it 50-50. And instead they start fighting about who gets to keep the money. And I think the point that's being made is Look, there are messed up people, but we're all messed up people. And the serial killer and the cowboy and the two little boys on the bike, they've all got the same DNA flowing through them. It's this DNA that we talked about in the question earlier that we inherit from Adam, this original sin. They all have that potential to be the worst guy. And they've all got something wrong with them. And I think one of the reasons that non-believers don't ask Christians question about the questions about their faith is that we forget that. We forget who we are. And so instead of being humble and approachable, we come across as being self-righteous, uh, holier than thou, what have you, standoffish. And so people don't approach us and they don't actually ask us questions. So we got to pray, we got to live differently, 
we've got to remember who we are. Uh, and then fourthly, uh, when people do ask us, we need to speak up, but speak wisely. Look at verse 5 and 6 again. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Gracious, but seasoned with salt. Now you might ask the question, well, is Paul talking about this kind of blatantly evangelistic conversation? Is he talking about just an ordinary conversation you have with somebody? I think the answer is, yeah, he's talking about all that. Uh, he assumes that believers are going to be having conversations with unbelievers just in the ordinary course of everyday life. That you're not going to be isolated from them, but you're actually going to be involved with unbelievers having conversations with them. And then at some point, something's going to provoke them to ask, actually ask you a question. And when we answer, when we enter into these conversations, we ought to be gracious, uh, we ought to be winsome, and yet, and yet, we ought to want to be thought-provoking. That our conversation is also seasoned with salt. Uh, you know, when we, when we think about evangelism, uh, just sharing our faith with others, I think a lot of times the way the church has looked at this is I have these moments where, you know, I go out to the shopping mall or whatever, knocking on doors, and I'm trying to share my faith with people, and that's doing evangelism, and then I just have the rest of my life that is completely disconnected from sharing my faith with anyone. And I, and I think what Scripture is calling us to here is not that you're entering into this soul-searching conversation with everybody you meet within 45 seconds of meeting them. You know, where's the peanut butter? Do you know if you're going to go to heaven when you die tonight? You know, you're trying to turn every little thing into this evangelistic encounter. It's not calling us to that. On the other hand, it's not calling you to this deal where you never speak about your faith. Uh, the point, I think, here is to be thoughtful and yet intentional in the conversations that you have with other people. Now, it may be mean, being very blunt and straight uh, with them, but it may also mean that you're just taking a year, two years, five years talking about baseball or cars or the, the food channel or, or whatever. Uh, just having a relationship with another person. And as you're having that relationship, praying, living, looking for those opportunities to talk about Christ. Uh, and that takes wisdom, and that takes patience, and that takes a relationship, and there's no for magic formula for that. There's no kind of crash course that, hey, just come do this, uh, and then everybody's going to believe you. Uh, you, you know, you'll be back in a thousand. No, it's wisdom, patience, prayer, uh, loving another person, being involved in their lives. Um, and, you know, this is tricky because there really are times when we ought to be more confrontational with people uh, because there very much is a tendency today for people to say, look, you believe what you want to believe, I believe what I want to believe, and everything's cool. And there ought to be times where we kind of push back against that and say, you know what, that's not really the case. 
Uh, and there's times where you actually have to say to somebody winsomely yet lovingly, you know, I, I don't really agree with you there. Um, let's, let's talk about this some more. And so what some of us need is more boldness to actually speak up and to confront at times. Uh, but we also need to relax, and we'll get to this in a minute, and simply enjoy the relationships that God has given us. Uh, and to look at people not as evangelistic projects, but as this person made in God's image that I just need to love and to get to know and to pray for and to see what God does with this. Uh, and to have some of that pressure taken off of you. This has got to immediately go somewhere. Uh, fifth thing, and there's just two more here. Uh, if we're going to have people ask us questions, is this, the gospel needs to be becoming more important to us than our circumstances. The gospel needs to be becoming more important to us than our circumstance, circumstances. Now, what's, what's Paul's situation when he's writing this? He's in prison. He's in jail. Right? He's in change. And what's he thinking about? He's praying for open doors for the gospel. Right? It's not, get me out of here quick now. I mean, he does want to get out, but it's, he's like, look, this is where I am. And so pray for open doors for the gospel. And, and guys, this is, this is real uh, easy for all of us to get caught up in our circumstances. And life is really hard right now. And I've got this going on and this going on. And I've got this I'm battling against. And when I get all this taken care of, then I'll start thinking about the gospel again. And we lose sight of the fact that often it's the very difficulties that we're going through that God uses to open doors for us to speak about the truth of the gospel. Our health is bad, our job situation is bad, the money flow is bad, family situation is bad, work's bad, it's all bad. And yet we forget that God's put us there for his purposes. And then in the midst of all that, we ought to be praying for open doors for the gospel. But it's easy to get sidetracked when life's hard. And yet, it's also easy to get sidetracked when life's good, isn't it? Because everything's going well. I got what I want. My family's comfortable. The money's coming in. I'm enjoying life. And we've forgotten what we're supposed to be about. Uh, the gospel's got to be becoming more important to us than our circumstances. Now, I'm not going to repeat all those again. Um, last thing here. Last thing in all of this. One final thing. There was a man one time who really struggled with sharing his faith, his faith uh, with other people. And he just had all this guilt about it. And he was constantly talking to his pastor about it. You know, help me to figure out how to do this. I'm not good at this. Uh, I'm too timid. I'm scared, etc., etc., etc. And finally the pastor said to him, You know, you do understand that God won't love you any less than he does right now if you never share your faith with another person. If you never share your faith with another person, God won't love you any less than he does right now. And it's like a light bulb finally went off for the guy. That the gospel made sense to him. That, that God didn't love him because he shared his faith. But he had chosen to love him. 
and he'd given him Jesus and that's how he viewed him whether he shared his faith or not and when that light bulb went off guess what he suddenly started to share his faith not because he had to not because he's trying to earn points with God or with the church or with other believers but because he wanted to here's a God who loves me so much that he loves me and he gave his son for me even when I'm scared to death to tell anybody else about it and yet he still loves me and he still accepts me uh, there's an old Puritan who said that for many of us religion is the means of averting God's displeasure and securing his favor uh, that's what religion to us it is a way of averting God's displeasure and securing his favor in other words it's just a way we keep God happy I think he said it's often irksome it's often a pain uh, but they do not feel easy neglecting it. All right, religion is a pain, but I feel kind of guilty when I neglect it, so I'm going to keep doing it. And they hope that by it they may obtain forgiveness before they die. I hope that if I keep being religious, keep keeping my nose clean, then I'll be okay with God. And when I die, I'll go to heaven and everything will be cool. And I think that for some of us, sharing our faith is just one more thing that we're supposed to be doing. It's just one more, alright, I checked that off. I'm supposed to be doing that. God's going to like me because I did that. And when we don't do it, we feel guilty that we haven't done it. Uh, the same writer said, acceptance with God lies at the foundation of all religion. For there must be an accepted worshiper before there can be acceptable worship. There must be an accepted worshiper before there can be acceptable worship. And I might add, there must be an accepted evangelist before there can be acceptable evangelism. In other words, you've got to know who you are. You've got to know that your evangelism, that your religious works are not making you right with God. They're not contributing to your standing with God. They're not making Him love you more. But you're as loved and accepted as you can possibly be because of the work of Jesus Christ. You know, I, I hope that this message stirs you up to pray, that it stirs you up to think about your relationships, um, that it, it pushes you a little bit uh, in certain ways. But more than that, uh, I want you to understand what Paul talks about here the mystery of the gospel. He's in prison to declare the mystery of the gospel. That you and I know and believe and rest in the good news of Jesus Christ. That we're not right with Him through our works, but we are right with God through the work of Jesus Christ. It's not sharing our faith. It's not our right attitude and our circumstances. It's not any of that. It's the blood of Christ that makes us right with the Father. And I want you to rest in that and to believe that. Let's pray.